This week on Geek Explained, with his impending debut in the MCU almost upon us, we're diving into the comic book history of one of my favorite Marvel villains. So join me as I Geek Explain the King of Kings, Master of Men, the Lord of the Seven Sons, the one, the only, Kang the Conqueror. <laughs> Welcome back to Geek Explained. I'm your host, Eric Kazana, and today's episode is another installment of our Geek Explained series, where I take a team, person, concept in the world of comic books and Geek Explain it to you. And this time, we are taking a deep dive into the comic book history of one Kang the Conqueror. I have been waiting to do this episode. Kang has always been one of my favorite Marvel villains, and I'm really excited to see just what Jonathan Majors has in store for him in the upcoming Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, which is releasing this month as of this recording. And uh, so we're going to take the time. We're going to dive into the several actually different histories of Kang the Conqueror from his time as Rama Tut all the way up to his time as Immortus. All the different threads that are going throughout the multiverse and through multiple timelines. We're going to try and simplify it. We're going to try and explain it all and boy oh boy, I have a uh, I have quite the task ahead of me. So join me for that in the main segment of our show. We also have of course this week's comics countdown where I'll chat you up about all the comics you should be picking up this week. So make sure you stay tuned for that after the jump. But without further ado, let's go ahead and roll right on into the main event, the main course, the entree, if you will, as I do my best to try and geek-splain Kang the Conqueror. So it's early 2011, probably around January, February-ish, and I was just starting my first semester of college. I was stressed, I was hungry, I had a large problem with my attention span, and going into college your first year is a stressful time. You're getting acclimated to the new systems of doing things you're getting acclimated to the new way of learning the new way of teaching and I was under a lot of stress and the way I dealt with that stress was by reading comics and playing video games and watching the occasional tv show and I remember stumbling across this show that had just started I think it was late the previous year 
which was called Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes. It was a cartoon that set out to tell the story of the Avengers, bringing them together and sticking as close to the comic origins as possible. This wasn't a modern retelling. This wasn't a uh, MCU-ified version yet, because at the in the beginning of 2011, that didn't really exist yet. And so I was over the moon at the idea of this, because I'd been a Marvel fan, I'd been a comic book fan for a while, and seeing that they were going for the true blue, you know, buccaneer boots, bright blue, red, and white Captain America, I was entranced. I was enchanted by the fact that they were taking all of these Silver Age accoutrements and applying them to this kid's show. And I started watching it. My first episode, obviously, that I needed to watch was episode four, entitled Meet Captain America. And in that episode, it's... Revealed to the viewer, not to the main character, Captain America and Bucky, that the events that we are watching are not happening in real time. They are being viewed by someone, a third party that's watching alongside us, the viewer, as Cap and Bucky make their final stand before Cap is frozen and he wakes up in the modern day. And that third party was a character named Kang the Conqueror. I had never seen this character before. And I, I mean, I have always been a big sci-fi fan. I've always been a big time travel fan. And I was just entranced by this character. This world-conquering, universe-conquering character who was watching his entire reality melt around him and when he looked for the source the cause of his entire reality being taken from him including his love he came upon captain america now kang would have a lengthy run as i would say honestly cap's main antagonist if not baron zemo in that show and every time that he showed up i was glued to it And I wanted to learn more about the character, so I started going back and researching and asking around and learning about this character, and Kang became one of my favorite Avengers villains. I'm not saying that his stories were always the best, because if we're being honest, they weren't, but I loved his character, and... By character, I mean characters, because he's had so many lives throughout his entire comic book's history that uh, it would be disingenuous of me to just say that he has one specific strict continuity. But I have loved this character for a really long time, and when I found out that he was not only going to be appearing in the upcoming Ant-Man and the Wasp's Quantumania, but that he was going to be getting a dedicated essentially maybe two-part Avengers film, just like Thanos did with Infinity War and Endgame, I was over the moon about it. I mean, we're getting Kang Dynasty back-to-back with Secret Wars, and Kang might be the main villain of both. Obviously, with Secret Wars, I think there's a lot of finagling you have to do and a lot of uh, weirdness that you have to avoid, but... Telling the story of the Kang Dynasty is going to be a hell of a victory if they can pull that off. And with 
his debut in the MCU being portrayed by one Jonathan Majors, I wanted to take the time to sit down with you, the listener, who may not be as well-versed or obsessed with Kang the Conqueror, and kind of break down what he's all about, because this is our latest geek Geeksplained session, where I take a character or a team and I Geeksplain them to you. And if you are not aware of the character, if if Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania is going to be the first time that you see Kang and you want to learn more about him, well, I got you, boo. We're going to be going over his entire comic book history, doing a little bit of breakdown with his main beats, his affiliations, teams, powers, all that stuff. And then I'm also going to give you some homework, maybe. (laughs) If you want to read more about Kang's adventures, uh, now is the perfect time to do that, to get caught up before we see him grace the silver screen in two weeks as of this recording. So without further ado, let's just go ahead and dive into this. Let's geeksplain Kang. So before we get into the big breakdown, I'm going to give you his cliff notes, This is uh, just little basic info about the character that you'll need to kind of understand going forward into his big, long history. Uh, So Kang's real name is Nathaniel Richards. He's also been known as, of course, Kang the Conqueror, Ramatut, Victor Timely, the Scarlet Centurion, Immortus, and Iron Lad. More on that later. His first appearance is obviously... uh, already complicated because Kang did not first appear as Kang in the comic books. It was a retcon, we love those, uh, to explain away an appearance that he made under a separate identity because as you probably heard, he was also known as Amortis. He was known as Ramatut. These characters who had appeared in Marvel Comics before Kang showed up in all his glory. And I'm sure if you're familiar with the MCU and you watched Loki, this is not going to be the first time we see a variant of Kang. We saw him at the end of Loki as the one who remains. And now we're going to see, you know, the more warmongering Conqueror version, which I'm very excited about. 2023 is going to be a great year for Jonathan Majors, and we love to see it. But the first appearance of Kang was actually in his persona of Pharaoh Rama Tut in Fantastic Four number 19 way back in 1963. And he would make his proper debut as Kang the very next year in 1964 in the pages of Avengers number 8. He was created by Stanley and Jack Kirby and his team affiliations include the Council of Kangs, the Council of Cross Time Kangs, which are two different entities, the Anachronauts, the Hell Rangers, Legion Accursed, the Time Variance Authority, the Savage Avengers, and the Young Avengers. His powers and abilities through his natural uh, powers and abilities are an increased lifespan because everyone in his time has an increased lifespan due to their technological advancements and the fact that they're able to keep people alive for longer. He has a superior intellect and he is a skilled combatant in every type of weapon. This man has been training to conquer worlds, so he needs to be well-versed in every way he can hurt somebody. His equipment, his most iconic equipment, includes a battle armor that I'm sure you are familiar with. It's the purple and green getup that he is often seen wearing. And this battle armor gives him enhanced strength 
strength and durability, contains an anti-grab device, concussive bolts, a hover pad, and a bunch of other uh, technological advancements that would look like witchcraft to us here in the 21st century. Uh, He also possesses a time scanner, which allows him to get all of the nitty-gritty details on whichever time period and space he may be in he has the light of the century sphere that's right that big time sphere that he's always uh (laughs) that he's always seen with it's actually got a name and it is called the light of the centuries spear uh this allows him to time travel just within his little uh his little time bubble and he can take anyone he wants who can fit with him inside that time bubble to any point in space and time. And of course, he is often seen with his gigantic time ship, which is this large aircraft that allows him to traverse not just through time, but also through space. So that is the basic info for this character, and we are now going to get into the history of Kang the Conqueror. And just like with our episode where I geek-splained Namor, if you missed that, go check back in the archives. Uh, I dropped that back in November, I believe. Uh, I do need to give a disclaimer on this. Uh, Kang has had lots of different origins, and his origin changes depending on which character we're dealing with, which variant of Kang we're dealing with, which timeline we're in, what world we're in, what continuity we're playing in. And it's widely assumed that every single iteration of Kang is a different variant from the original Kang. But I am going to do my best to try and give you the the clearest through line I can through the history of Kang. Um, this is going to be mostly tracking him just as Kang. There might be a little bit of wibbly wobbly with other personas that he's had in the past before Kang, but we're not going to get all the way up until like Amortis, let's say, because Amortis is so far down the line in Kang's own timeline that Kang hasn't even gotten there yet. And I don't think he even knows how he turns into Amortis. So I'm going to try to give you everything you need to know from his inception all the way up to right now diving into his comics. So without further ado, let's get into it. So our story begins in the 30th century, though not the 30th century of the Earth 616 that we're all accustomed to, but in fact the 30th century of Earth 6311. That's right, Kang is not even from our future. (laughs) We are already off the rails, we're already getting into confusing stuff, so um, it's only going to get wilder from here. So Kang, as it as it turns out, is actually, as we stated before, Nathaniel Richards, who is the descendant of another Nathaniel Richards, that being the father of 616 Reed Richards. See, this Nathaniel Richards was a bit of a scoundrel, a bit of a rapscallion, a bit of a wandering man, and uh, was also a war criminal and time criminal, and found himself stranded in Earth uh, 6311 due to some of his uh, some of his jobs not going the way that he wanted to. He became what was known as the Great Benefactor on Earth 6311, pulling them out of the Dark Ages and bringing them into a peaceful and prosperous era where nothing bad ever happened and technology ended up solving literally everything. 
It's also been hinted that he might also be the descendant of a version of Doom, perhaps from 6311, but it's never been explicitly stated as such, but we'll just say that he was. Uh, Nathaniel was bullied very harshly as he grew up because of his superior intellect and the fact that he had the pressure of his incredibly legendary uh, ancestor upon him. And at age 16, he found himself subject to a pretty severe bullying from a child who was not very impressed with Richards's uh, lineage and his family history. And he wanted to make that clear by slicing young Nathaniel's throat. Thankfully, at this exact moment, a I guess a not boom tube, boom tube opened up next to them and out stepped a purple and green clad man who seemed to know a lot about Nathaniel. He disarmed the teenager, sent him packing, and took Nathaniel under his wing, introducing himself as Kang the Conqueror. Now, he mentioned that this accident or this let's not call it an accident, let's call it a brutal beatdown from this teenager, would have ruined Nathaniel's family and his life due to his medical bills. And so Kang came back to try and prevent this from happening and wanted to give the young Nathan a little bit of guidance. And so he outfitted him with a smaller, uh, but just as technologically advanced version of his own suit and his own battle armor and showed him the future, showed him his potential as Kang the Conqueror. However, this didn't have the intended effect on young Nathaniel and horrified by the atrocities that he would commit as Kang, he escaped Kang and sent himself hurtling through the time stream, and not just through the time stream, but through the barriers between worlds, finding himself in modern-day New York City on Earth-616. Arriving in New York, uh, this young man decided to try and seek out the Avengers to get their help because he knew that Kang would not be far behind him. However, he found himself in the ruins of the Avengers mansion. That's right. He popped up right after the events of Avengers Disassembled, where Scarlet Witch, after being driven insane by the loss of her, fam- uh, by the loss of her family, uh brought about the end of the Avengers by killing several of them and destroying their home base. So at this point, there were no Avengers, which meant Nathaniel was shit out of luck. However, he knew that he he was of sterling intellect and knew that if Kang was going to try and follow him, Nathaniel was going to go down swinging. So he found himself a Stark Industries facility that he subsequently broke into and discovered the remains of the Vision, who had been destroyed during the events of Disassembled. And he also saw that within the remnants of the Synthesoid were was a program. A program that was installed to, as a failsafe in case the Avengers were ever ousted, destroyed, or otherwise incapacitated, and they would seek out this prayer, this program would seek out these new recruits to bring them under the fold and designate them as the new Avengers. 
So Nathaniel decided to use this failsafe program and recruit three teenagers with attitude. One Eli Bradley, who would go on to take the mantle of Patriot. Teddy Altman, who was secretly a shape-shifting half-alien and would become the hero Hulkling. And Billy Kaplan, who through his use of chaos magic and other different magical uh, techniques, would go on to become the hero Asgardian. Nathaniel then reconstructed his battle armor that Kang had provided him into an Iron Man-esque armor and dubbed himself the Iron Lad. And they became the first iteration of the Young Avengers. Their first outing as a new supergroup was against the villain Electro, And it did not go well for them. Electro beat the crap out of them and then went on to instigate the breakout of the raft, which means the Young Avengers basically instituted the formation of the New Avengers. So anybody who loves that Bendis Avengers run, you have the Young Avengers to thank for that. Eventually, they were joined by Cassie Lang, daughter of Scott Lang, the at the time, deceased Ant-Man, who would go on to become the hero Stature, as well as Kate Bishop, who would also take up a dead hero's mantle as Hawkeye. This group would go on several different adventures before eventually being tracked down by Kang, who was intent on bringing his younger self to heal and turning him into a future conqueror. During this time, Cassie had declared her feelings for Nathaniel, and those feelings were reciprocated, the two sharing a what we would come to be known as a star-crossed kiss before Kang arrived and laid waste to the Young Avengers in an effort to bring back Iron Lad. However, Iron Lad was able to outsmart Kang and ended up actually killing his future self and realizing that due to this, the time stream would soon collapse with all futures now being in flux due to uh, Kang's non-creation with uh, Iron Lad no longer taking on that role. He realized that the only thing that he could do to save the time stream, to save all of reality, was to become the Conqueror. Before he did so, though, he used the remnants of his armor as well as the broken remnants of the vision that he found at that Stark Industries facility and constructed a new teenage vision who would take his place on the Young Avengers before sharing a tearful goodbye with Cassie and returning into his time to save the timeline. Uh, During this time, the Young Avengers would go on to have more adventures and uh, Nathaniel would watch from afar while back in his own timeline trying to figure out how he could keep the timeline safe while also averting his journey into becoming uh, Kang the Conqueror. He observed the timeline, was able to kind of retrofit and reverse engineer some of Kang's old technology to allow him to traverse the timeline and became kind of a defender of different time periods, doing essentially what, if you're familiar with the uh, Loki TV show, the TVA would do, where he would go out to uh, solve time problems, or uh, I guess for anyone who is an Arrowverse fan, he was doing the job that the Legends of Tomorrow would do. However... 
at a certain point, he found himself in another timeline where Kang was alive and well, and not just alive and well, he had his own team of Avengers around him. This team of Avengers was actually comprised of grown-up versions of his young Avengers teammates who had gotten sick of the way the world was and joined with Kang to conquer it. If you are familiar with the Titans of Tomorrow uh, story from Teen Titans, it's basically that. And Kang revealed to the young Iron Lad that this whole timeline was set about by the deaths of Billy Kaplan and Wanda Maximoff. So... Iron Lad escaped back into the timeline to try and avert their deaths. However, it was then revealed that Kang, in fact, was lying to Iron Lad, and it was, in fact, his involvement in this next stage of history that would lead to this future. So Iron Lad popped back into the modern day during the Children's Crusade storyline where Wanda, after the events of uh, Avengers Disassembled, House of M, uh, all of that No More Mutant stuff, she had disappeared, she'd been missing, and she popped up in Latveria, of all places, uh, amnesiac and set to be wed to Doctor Doom. Uh, He arrived just in time to whisk the Young Avengers and Wanda into the time stream to deal with whatever was going on, because they were not the only interested parties in this this storyline. The Avengers and the X-Men were also individually trying to find Wanda for their own purposes. The Avengers trying to bring Wanda back and help her recover, while the X-Men wanted revenge for Wanda decimating most of their population. And so, while in the time stream, Iron Lad reconciled with Cassie, though he also clocked that she was beginning a uh, a romance with Vision, who, in the same way that Vision was originally created from the brainwaves of Wonder Man, this teenage Vision was created from Nathaniel's own brainwaves. So, history repeating itself all over the place, and um, as we would come to find out, Nathaniel, just like Wonder Man, is the worst! So... Obviously, uh, this was going to cause problems. Uh, Wanda, during this, you know, strategic, this strategic uh, powwow, decided that she could fix things if they could go back to the disassembled, uh, the moment of Avengers disassembled, and try to fix things from there. This inadvertently brought Scott Lang back to the present day, which, as we would come to find out, was. Not, in fact, technically a retcon, because the explosion that took Scott Lang's life left no remains, and it was revealed that it was, in fact, him being saved and brought to the present day. So Scott Lang was alive, he got to meet his teenage daughter Cassie, and everything was great. However, uh, things were not great in general, because Doctor Doom... The X-Men and the Avengers converged on the Young Avengers and Wanda, and Doctor Doom utilized his knowledge of the mystic arts to steal Wanda's chaos magic, and the Young Avengers had to unite with Iron Lad, uh, the X-Men, and the Avengers to try and defeat Doctor Doom. They were able to do so, however, Cassie was inadvertently killed by Doctor Doom during the scuffle, and Iron Lad, in hopes of bringing Cassie into the time stream with him to heal her, was rejected by everyone, including the new Teen Vision. And in response, 
Ironlad destroyed Vision, completely just scrapping him for parts and then realizing that he had become the thing that he hated. He had begun his first steps into becoming Kang. He escaped back into the time stream. Uh, and from there began his journey into becoming a conqueror. However, in escaping into the time stream, he wasn't sure exactly where he would end up, and he actually wound up at the end of time and encountered Kang and Immortus, two future versions of himself who were also there under mysterious circumstances. And the three of them realized through some kind of... Uh, omniscient knowledge that they were there to wait for the last Avenger. This last Avenger ended up being a time-traveling Steve Rogers who was using a fractured time gem to try and figure out how they could solve the entropy of the multiverse. And unfortunately, the three versions of Kang were unable to stop Steve from using this fractured time gem to return to his own time, thereby sealing the fate of every universe at large. However... That's a story for later on down the time stream. So for now, Nathaniel, realizing that he was destined to become a villain, tried to at least provide a stopgap between him and uh, Kang and decided to take a hint from this other version of himself and became Kid Immortus to try and avoid his future as Kang, hopefully to uh, become this much seemingly more tempered version of the character than the conqueror that he was supposed to become. At this point, he encountered a teenage Ravana Renslayer, keep that name in mind, it'll become important later, and the two conspired to defeat the Fantastic Four, uh, deciding that if they could defeat the Fantastic Four before they encounter Kang, then in that, uh, in essence, would be able to diverge the timeline and allow him to escape his fate. However, he was unsuccessful in defeating the Fantastic Four and ended up conspiring with that timeline's Doctor Doom and Annihilus to try and defeat the Fantastic Four as a team. However, Doom gonna Doom, and he betrayed both uh, Kid Immortus as well as Annihilus and uh, nearly killed the young man before he was rescued by Ravana and returned into the time stream. Eventually, he was returned to his native time and place place and eventually grew into adulthood uh growing bored with his relative time of peace and prosperity he decided that he was going to try his hand at some more time travel he traveled back to the 616 but this time went to ancient egypt and took on a new identity as pharaoh ramatut to try and control the masses, and see how uh, being a ruler of men would fit him. Eventually, a time-traveling Fantastic Four arrived and ousted him as Pharaoh, and he escaped through the time stream and accidentally ended up in present day. Here, Pharaoh Ramatut meets and is inspired by Doctor Doom. Uh, it's unclear how much he remembers of his time as both Iron Lad and Kid Immortus. It's never really uh, established where the through line is. Uh, that's what makes this episode incredibly difficult to research. However, 
Rama Tut finds himself inspired by Doctor Doom, not just his uh, rule with an iron fist approach to Latveria, but also his snazzy battle armor. And so he builds his own battle armor and becomes the Scarlet Centurion. He clashes with and is defeated by the Avengers, quickly realizing that the Scarlet Centurion thing wasn't going to work out for him. And so he returns to the place of his birth. However, with his armor damaged, he winds up not back in his home century, but in fact, even further in the future, in the 40th century. Now, this 40th century was not quite as technologically advanced because a mysterious war conflict thing had happened, resulting in not just nuclear winter, but also a complete regression back to the Dark Ages. Uh, if you're familiar with, like, uh, Horizon Zero Dawn, it's very that, where all of that technology is still available, but no one knows how to use it, and most of it is in disrepair. So this young man, Nathaniel Richards, who had not worked out as Iron Lad, who had not worked out as Kid Immortus, who had not worked out as Ramatut or the Scarlet Centurion, decides... I am going to try my hand at conquering this world and officially dubs himself Kang the Conqueror. Once he utilizes the technology to conquer the world, he then builds upon that, utilizing his empire to enact space travel and begin conquering among the stars. And he sets out to conquer not just every planet in his universe, to conquer every universe and every timeline. Eventually, he returns to present-day 616 to battle with the Avengers, and in his initial outing against the Avengers, realizes the threat that Captain America poses as a man out of time himself, and sends him back to 1945 to get him off the board. However... Kang is outsmarted by Rick Jones and the Teen Brigade. I feel like I gotta do like a every time the Teen Brigade shows up. Um, and thankfully, Cap is rescued and returns to the present day, aiding the Avengers to defeat Kang and send him back into the timeline. And this, my dear listener, is where everything goes to crap when it comes to researching, when it comes to... Uh, trying to find a through line, because this is the beginning of Divergent Kangs. Y'all know, if you're familiar with the MCU and their Disney Plus shows, about the existence of variants. The TVA, Time Variance Authority, is built to try and stop variants from happening. However, in the comics, the variants are not a new concept. Variants way back when, were known as divergence. And here, many, 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 many different divergence of Kang sprung up. From this initial clash with the Avengers, Kang was hurtled back into the time stream, and from here, making decisions in the time stream, Kang created dozens of divergent selves, all of which were set on one goal, conquering the modern era of the 616. One of these divergents traveled back to 1901, a 
of the 616 and established the town of Timely, Wisconsin, uh, basically becoming the founder, mayor, and overall democratic ruler of this town. Uh, during this time, he used the remnants of his time uh, tech to establish Chronopolis, this city in the clouds and outside of every reach of time stream except by him that he could build upon and establish and grow into the greatest city of all time. Meanwhile, on the terrestrial plane of Earth, he builds Timely Industries, a modern marvel of technological and industrial innovation, and inadvertently, due to the technological advancements of Timely Industries, helped develop tech later used by the Fantastic Four, Roxxon, and literally everything else that we know. So if you are a tech hero in the Marvel era currently, you probably have some timely tech within you, which I think is a really fun, you know, callback to Timely Comics, obviously the genesis of Marvel Comics. Um, so Victor Timely continued on his uh, merry way while the Prime Kang, and I use Prime in quotations because this Kang believes himself to be the Prime Kang, though there is no empirical evidence that he is actually the Prime Kang. He might actually just be another Divergent Kang. Uh, I want you to know that this took me an entire day's worth of work to do the research for this. Uh, and if this is confusing for you, think about how confusing it was for me. Uh, but let's continue on. This Prime Kang uh, returns to the 40th century and continues conquering the galaxy, uh, engaging in wars with not just the Shi'ar, but also the Skrull Empire. And it is during this time where he first encounters Immortus. Immortus, unbeknownst to him, is a future version of himself long, far away into the future. And Immortus does give him warning about, like, look, things are going to get weird if you continue on this path. And Kang's like, things are already weird. And Immortus is like, you know what? Fair enough. It's also during this time, during his many wars in the 40th century, that he encounters Ravana once again. This time, he finds that Ravana is actually a princess. And she's the princess of a planet that he is raring to conquer. And the two of them fall in love, though more so Kang than Ravana. And Ravana, in the uh, hopes of sparing her planet agrees to marry Kang, and the two of them rule over his empire as husband and wife. During this time, they also battle with my favorite version of the Avengers, the Kooky Quartet, and uh, Kang is able to earn more of Ravana's love rather than just her acceptance of their marriage during this time. However... During this time, uh, his second-in-command, Baltag, uh, grows a little disinterested in Kang's devotion to his wife and decides to overthrow uh, Kang, ousting him from his position at the head of the Empire and forcing Kang to team up with his sworn enemy, the Avengers, to defeat Baltag and return him to power. However... Baltag, in his final moments, tries to shoot 
uh, Kang with a deadly time ray, and Kang is pushed out of the way by his love, Ravana, and she is struck and fatally wounded by the blast instead. Kang ends up putting Ravana into suspended animation, though in this weird, wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey version, she is neither alive nor dead, so there's not really a way to revive her. He's essentially just keeping her there as... I don't want to say like a trophy, but more like a martyr, I guess, and declares war in honor of his love on every single timeline. This kicks off his Endless War era, or as we call it, his Taylor Swift era, inspired by his lost love to wage war on literally everyone. Uh, Kang ends up running across the Grand Master, and they agree to a Game of Galaxies, where Grand Master, if Kang defeats him in this chess match, this cosmic chess match, he will give him the powers over life and death so that he can revive his lost love. The Grand Master ends up choosing a group of champions from throughout the history of Marvel, handpicking different timeline versions of villains across the uh, across the history of the 616 while Kang chooses the Avengers as his champions. Now, the first round pits several Avengers against the Squadron Sinister, and due to the battle uh, not really having a conclusive victor, it is declared a draw. The second round, however, sends Kang's, uh, Kang's Avengers back into the 1940s where they clash with the invaders of all people, and the Avengers are able to defeat the invaders, giving the second round to Kang. However, this is where the Grandmaster reveals his master plan in that Kang only won one round, which means he only gets to choose the power of life or death. So, he can either save Ravana, he can choose the power of life, save his lost love, and the two of them can go off into the sunset, or he can choose the power of death to gain revenge on the Avengers for losing the first round. And you know what Kang picks. Kang, blinded by his anger and manipulated by the Grandmaster, chooses the power of death to try and destroy the Avengers. Kang is ultimately defeated by the Avengers, and they escape back into their uh, home timeline, and the Grandmaster, being an absolute dick, is like, hey man, I guess you should have uh, rethought your choices, huh? Even though he was the one that manipulated Kang into choosing the power of death, and so Kang is disillusioned and uh, sent back into the time stream to pick up the pieces of his lost way. He ends up arriving in the 23rd century of Earth 6297 and battles against Zarko, the Tomorrow Man. Uh, Zarko is another time traveler, and the two of them clash. Eventually, the Avengers are brought in. Kang is defeated once again and sent back into the timeline. However, it is during his next period traversing the time stream when he comes upon the legend of the Celestial Madonna, the Messiah figure who is supposed to bring out the 
uh, greatest age of humankind. It is also supposed to, I guess, sire the uh, one true god. And so Kang decides, I am going to wed this celestial Madonna and be the father of this one true messiah. So he travels back into the modern day and kidnaps Scarlet Witch mantis and agatha harkness because apparently according to his scrolls and his research one of them would become the celestial madonna it's during this time where uh he brings them to to egypt to utilize the uh I guess the tomb of his former self, Ramatut, and utilize the energies and the te- technology inside that tomb, inside that pyramid, to not just divine which of these three women is the Celestial Madonna, but also to prep her for her ascension into becoming the Celestial Madonna. However, he did not realize that this tomb was occupied. And Outsprings Ramatut, another version of himself from maybe earlier, maybe later in his timeline, and the two of them fight over the Celestial Madonna. So Kang is battling with Ramatut. The Avengers arrive to try and rescue their three allies, and it is revealed that the Celestial Madonna is, in fact, Mantis, who at this time was about to be wed to the source, the Swordman. So, again, for those of you, tra- you know, keeping track somehow, if you're a fan of the MCU, this is Mantis from the Guardians uh, about to wed Swordsman from uh, the Hawkeye show. Imagine that. The comics... The comics rule in their ridiculousness. Um, During the battle, Kang is able to defeat Ramatut and kills the swordsman because if he can't have the Celestial Madonna, nobody can. He is then uh, whisked away alongside Ramatut into limbo by Immortus. Who was there to basically be like, look, you guys need to calm down. (laughs) Shit is getting weird, and we need to figure out what is next for both of you. However, Kang rebels against both Ramatut and Immortus, and strands them in limbo. However, he is defeated by a dimension-hopping Thor, and escapes back into the time stream. Kang then makes his way to Tombstone, Arizona. He makes his way to my neck of the woods uh, in the year 1873 and battles against the Two-Gun Kid, the Rawhide Kid, and Kid Colt. He is subsequently defeated somehow by these uh, cowboy boys and uh, shunted back into the time stream where he decides he's going to need some help. He establishes the Council of Kangs alongside two other divergent Kangs and decides they are the only Kangs worth keeping around. So they set about warring on all Kangs, going after every single Kang in every single timeline and executing them because they are deemed weaker. Alongside this, however, the Council of Kangs established robot duplicates to rule the Divergent Empires, making them completely indistinguishable from their former counterparts, though all of them can now be controlled by the Council of Kangs. That means a bunch of Kangs are still out there, and it's not, and we're not sure which are robot duplicates and which are actual Divergent Kangs. Uh, this results in 
another Divergent Kang being recruited by the Beyonder to Battleworld. This Divergent Kang is killed by Ultron, though again, we're not sure whether this Divergent Kang was an actual Kang or a robot Kang. It's assumed that he was a robot Kang. A separate, separate Divergent Kang is recruited by Mephisto to join the Legion of Curse to try and destroy the Beyonder. They fail. This Kang is destroyed, and we're, again, not sure whether he's a robot duplicate or not. However, the Prime, again, quote-unquote Prime Kang, uh, decides that now that he's whittled down the number of actual Divergent Kangs to just two besides himself, now he can take these two Divergent Kangs out. He kills one of the Divergent Kangs after revealing a now alive and conscious Ravana, and is confronted by Immortus, who has this crazy artifact called the Psyche Globe, or the Psyche Globe. Uh, this results in Kang killing the other Divergent Kang, reveal- leaving just one Kang to try and battle with Immortus to gain control of the Psyche Globe. Because this Psyche Globe contains the knowledge and memories of all Kangs that were destroyed by the Council of Kangs. Kang is able to defeat Immortus and gains control of the Psyche Globe, though with the infinite amount of Kangs that he and the rest of his council killed, the knowledge and memories of that threatens to drive him insane. And so he creates one more Divergent Kang to split the knowledge between the two of them and strands that Kang in another timeline, creating Kang-12348982.23497. Is that important? No. We never see this Kang ever again. Kang Prime sets his sights on Mantis once again and decides to try and kidnap her. If she won't uh, go along with him, then he will destroy her and ends up in New York during the Inferno event. Which, Inferno, at this point, Maddie, uh, who is completely absolved of anything, any wrongdoing, she's never done anything wrong ever, uh, plunged... New York into limbo and brought about hell on earth. During this time, with everything going on, Kang decides to try and kidnap Mantis because he's like, ah, the Avengers are going to be busy. This is going to be great. So he shows up. However, uh, in trying to kidnap slash murder Mantis, he runs across the Fantastic Four, as well as the sorcerer Necrodamus, who is a completely... Separate third party who also wants Mantis. Uh, This is not the first time, nor will it be the last time, that Kang is undone by a separate entity who just happens to be interested in the same thing that he's interested in. Uh, He allies with the Kotati race to try and kill Mantis, is defeated by Mantis, and escapes back into the time stream. It is here, while traversing through the time stream and recouping his losses, that he's contacted by one Doctor Doom who wants to bring him in for an Ocean's Eleven Infinity Heist. He's like, look, the Magus, who it's not important to worry about, he's an evil Adam Warlock, has collected the Infinity Stones and is primed to put them on the Infinity Gauntlet and retain control over everything. 
how about you and me heist this Infinity Gauntlet from him? And Kang's like, yeah, sure, whatever. Um, they travel to Magus's home base, his lair outside of reality, and find that Magus has not only acquired the Infinity Stones, acquired an Infinity Gauntlet, but also has collected a multitude of cosmic cubes from throughout reality and is using them at present to destroy the celestial beings. So they are able to sneak in, sight unseen, to try and get this Infinity Gauntlet. They get right up to the line, and Doom's gonna Doom betrays Kang and kills him. However, it is revealed in this moment that Kang has had a contingency plan, and knowing that there are several times and several different versions of characters who are intent on killing him, Kang has instituted a backup plan for any time he is killed while serving in his battle armor. When he is killed, his battle armor transmits his consciousness back to his home era, back in the 40th century, and reconstitutes a clone body of him putting this consciousness into it so he can continue to fight on forever. It's essentially what they're doing in Krakoa right now, but just for one person. And so, during this time, a Council of Cross-Time Kangs is established. Now, this is different from the first Council of Kangs, because none of these Cross-Time Kangs are actually Kang. All of these Cross-Time Kangs are actually characters who killed their version of Kang and took on that role. So again, now, we have Prime Kang... His Divergent Kang, I'm not going to say all the numbers again. A bunch of robot duplicates, and possibly those robot duplicates were overthrown by all of these other non-Kangs. So there are a billion different Kangs. No one knows who's an actual Kang and who's not. But what's important is that this Council of Cross-Time Kangs is led in secret by Kang Nebula. Kang Nebula is important. Keep, keep that one in mind. Kang returns to his home uh, era and amasses an empire across six centuries while also establishing the Anachronauts. Now, the Anachronauts are essentially his elite guard that are comprised of warriors plucked from different periods throughout history. And it is during this that back in the modern day, Vision realizes that some of his components are timely components. And as he return as he makes his way to Timely Wisconsin, he is defeated by Victor Timely and taken into Chronopolis. Now, during this time, Kang also kidnaps several other Avengers who discover the Timely connection and he takes them all and brings them as his prisoners to Chronopolis, who he has now built out into a citadel outside of time. This is the uh, metropolis that he's always wanted. The Empire always uh, launches essentially from here. So anytime that he shows up, he is. this is his home base. Kang Nebula seeks out the Fantastic Four to try and save these Avengers and defeat Kang. 
and reveals herself as Ravana, the Ravana that Kang rescued during the Council of Kang's era, has now rebelled against Kang and is now dead set on killing him. Ravana, the FF, go to Kang's Citadel and battle with the Avengers, uh, who are also there to find their missing teammates and believing that, wait a second, that's Ravana. she's with Kang, uh, they're here, they kidnapped our people, so uh, fracas ensues between the Avengers and the FF. Meanwhile, Kang realizes, he looks out the window and he's like, oh shit, I got superheroes on my lawn. So he comes out, and because he's in Chronopolis, he's at the height of his power, defeats both the FF and the Avengers, kidnaps them and captures them and imprisons them alongside Ravana. Ravana pleads to Kang's conqueror side and says, what fun is this is executing us when you can defeat me in battle? And so the two of them decide to have a duel where if Kang wins, Ravana joins the Anachronauts, and if Ravana wins, she gets the Citadel, and Kang has to return all of the time-displaced heroes back to their own time. Kang defeats Ravana. During this duel, the Avengers and the FF break free, and they begin fighting the Anachronauts. Kang is able to defeat Ravana, and even though he is about to uh, take her on as an Anachronaut, an errant blast goes to hit Ravana and Kang in a mirror of their former, uh, of the end of their former love. Kang pushes Ravana out of the way, and he is fatally injured by this blast. Ravana promises to heal Kang, if for no other reason than to defeat him at his peak, and sends the heroes back to their own time and places uh, Kang into suspended animation, taking on the identity of the Terminatrix. However, she recognizes that there is a threat to not just Chronopolis, but to all of Kang's empire, and that is Eliath, which again, if you watched Loki, you know is this primordial force that eats everything having to do with time. And so realizing that there is an oncoming threat to her empire, she enlists the help of a future self, Revelation, and is given the cure for Kang so that he can rally his empire to defeat Eliath. However, before she can give Kang the cure, Eliath attacks Chronopolis and absorbs the Council of Crosstime Kangs, wiping out the entire Council of Infinite Crosstime Kangs except for Ravana and Revelation. So these two versions of Ravana uh, are able to successfully banish Eliath by reviving Kang and teaming up with the Avengers. And so Kang, after sending Revelation on her way back in the time stream, decides to rule the 41st century with Ravana and returns to that time to rule over their empire. However, the boy can't be helped and is uh, completely, I guess oblivious or let's just say ignorant the sacrifices that Ravana made and grows bored of peace and ruling and so he returns to Egypt as Ramatut. 
This is where Ramatut would stay until we found him again during the Celestial Madonna era. Um, remember, things are closing. Loops are closing. We're getting there. We're slowly starting to pare down stuff. But if you remember, where we left Ramatut following that was in Limbo. Now, Amortis and decides, you know what, I've, I've got better things to do. So he leaves, right? But while traversing Limbo, Ramatut is able to see into the time stream. And following the path that Immortus left, he realizes that Immortus is not the individualistic being that we had thought. Immortus is actually a servant of the timekeepers. And due to this... Enraged by the prospect of becoming a servant to literally anyone, Ramatut resumes his mantle as Kang the Conqueror and declares war on the Timekeepers as well as all rival time travelers. He first kicks things off by unleashing Eliath on the TVA, wiping them out, and also traveling to wherever he left Revelation and saying, hey, remember how I told you I was going to let you live? Psych! And kills her. Amortis, seeing all this, and obviously being a little taken aback by his past self's decision, decides to retaliate by destroying Chronopolis and killing the Anachronauts possibly including Ravana. Kang recovers from this attack in a safe house reality called Purgatory and decides to launch a full-scale invasion alongside the Avengers, who are trying to avert all of the time stream shenanigans that Amortis and the Timekeepers have been up to. Uh, the Timekeepers, realizing that they are on a losing battle, decide they're going to try and speed up Kang's personal timeline to turn him into Amortis. That way, they have one less Kang, two more servants, and they can deal with the Avengers. However... Kang fights against this, and through his sheer force of will, battles against time itself, and forces destiny to diverge. We cut back to Ramatut. Back in limbo, seeing that there is no way to leave limbo after Amortis abandons him, we see two Ramatuts created. Two divergent Ramatuts that are not like your classic divergence. They are, these are individual beings. One Ramatut decides he is going to seek out the key of immortality and mastery of time inside Limbo. And that Ramatut eventually grows into Amortis. While the other Ramatut becomes the Kang that eventually wages war on the Timekeepers. And after the conclusion of the Destiny War, Kang realizes this. Seeing the other Ramatut doing his thing in Limbo, knowing that he is free of his potential future as Immortus, he has finally achieved what he set out to do so long ago as Iron Lad in avoiding his own destiny. From here, he believes he can do anything. 
So he decides, I am going to return to my long-forgotten goal of conquering the modern 616. To this point, he establishes a new home base, Damocles, a time ship that is at least like a city-wide long. And no longer... uh, Satisfied with keeping a a stationary base like Chronopolis, Damocles travels with him. So he builds up Damocles uh, and begins his conquest anew, while also siring Marcus Kang, his son who he has born and bred to become the ultimate soldier, the ultimate warrior, and gives him the Scarlet Centurion mantle, which I want to remind you, he deemed a failure when he himself couldn't use it to defeat the Avengers. So he's kind of setting up his son to fail. However, Kang and the Centurion astride the Damocles base arrive on Earth, and they make their way to the United Nations with a declaration of war. They say, look, you've got two choices. You can surrender to me and my empire, or you can prepare yourself for a full-scale invasion where, where we will conquer you, and then you will be subjects of my empire. And in that, he doesn't he doesn't immediately go into a battle, which we show as growth, I think, right? He's showing growth. He's, you know, being a guy who has dealt with being defeated many times in the past, decides, let's try diplomacy first. Let me show you all of the future calamities that will happen without my help. And it's pretty convincing showing him, showing the United Nations and broadcasting across the entire world the future cataclysms that could happen if Kang is not ruling the Earth. Ultimately, though, the UN refuses. They refuse his plan of uniting the Earth as one conquering force and taking them out into the galaxy to conquer the rest of it. And Kang says, okay, you know what? I tried my best. Hey, get ready for France to be decimated. That's going to be our first strike. And then we're going to strike the rest of every city on the planet. See you later. And they return to Damocles. However, this conflict uh, has a mysterious third party once again who has no ties to the Avengers, no ties to Kang. It's the master of the world. The master of the world at this exact point, coincidentally, is declaring his own bid to conquer the Earth and has set up defenses at every hub, every major city on the planet in essence, you know, they were they were created to control these cities, but now they are unintentionally providing defenses against Kang's conquest. And so Kang is like, God, I can't believe we're doing this again. Look, Scarlet Centurion, you are going to go and defeat the master of the world. And Scarlet Centurion ends up teaming up with Warbird of the Avengers, and the two of them defeat the master. 
During all of this, the U.S. government is pressuring the Avengers to go after Kang, to infiltrate the Damocles base and destroy him before he destroys the world. Doing so, they are going to be violating Kang's order, who explicitly told them when he left the U.N., look, if you defend your, your cities, totally okay. I get it. I'm an invading force. I know how war works. But if you try to strike at Damocles' base, the response will be swift and cruel. And the U.S. government's going to do what the U.S. government is going to do. So they tell the Avengers, look, you got two choices. Either you go and defeat Kang, or we are going to send an entire fleet of Sentinels to destroy Damocles' base, con, you know, um... What is the word? Uh, consequences be damned. And so the Avengers are like, okay, look, we're going to try. We They try to infiltrate. Kang immediately sees their ship and is like, no, nah, you're funny. And disables their ship, stranding them in space. The U.S. government seeing this decides, all right, launch the Sentinel fleet. The Sentinel fleet flies up to try and destroy the Damocles base. And all of a sudden they stop in orbit. And then it is revealed, and I, I love this so much, it is revealed that the Sentinels, their maker, Trask Industries, actually may or may not have uh, shopped out for the materials to build the Sentinels. And where, by chance, you ask, did they get these materials? Why, from Timely Industries, of course! So the Sentinels are made of Timely components. So Kang is able to take control of the Sentinels and utilizing them destroys Washington, D.C. and then goes on to conquer the entire Earth, setting up the Kang Dynasty. However... His dynasty is not without its opposition, and his forces are unfortunately stretched thin throughout the planet to battle these resistance cells. Meanwhile, the Avengers are able to return thanks to the thanks to some timely intervention from another uh, alien race who are allies of the Avengers, and make their way into Damocles. They are able to overrun the city, which has been left mostly defenseless since it's set all of its forces to deal with uh, the resistance cells on the on Earth. And Captain America ends up defeating Kang in one-on-one combat while the rest of the Avengers set the Damocles vase on a collision course to crash. And so, in the moments before the Damocles base crashes, Kang sends Marcus back to his native time of the 41st century, telling him, look, you have all the tools, you can continue my campaign. I am going to die a warrior's death in battle. So he sends Marcus away, Damocles base crashes onto uh, back onto Earth, and Cap once again defeats Kang in one-on-one combat and takes Kang prisoner. While in prison, however, Kang is visited by Marcus alongside the Time Bubble, his uh, light-of-the-century sphere, to take Kang home. And Kang is not about this. He says to Marcus, Look, I told you 
to leave me to die a warrior's death, and you came back anyway. That shows that you love me. And unfortunately, that shows a flaw in you. And he stabs Marcus to death, saying that, and revealing in this moment that Marcus is not the first go-around that Kang has tried with this. Marcus is actually like the 28th version of Marcus, and all previous versions were too weak to deal with. And so he has the Marcus Project, essentially, where he keeps building new Marcuses to try and be his heir, and this one didn't work out. So Kang takes the Time Sphere back to his native time, However, he recognizes that this Marcus was different, that he grew attached to this Marcus. And so he doesn't immediately grow a new one before returning to his empire. Due to this, and due to this loss, and due to getting retrospective on not just his relationship with Marcus, but his journey, he decides, I have taken too long. I have taken too long. I have... I could have gotten so much more done if I had started earlier. And he realizes, you know what I'm going to do? I am going to start earlier. And so he returns earlier in his time stream. And I think you know where we're going here. To himself at 16 years old, about to be brutally injured by a bully. And this is where the Iron Lad stuff begins. Remember, we're closing these loops. We're starting to find where everything is being tied up. Things are starting to make sense again. And we are starting to get a through line. Well, uh, so if you remember during this Iron Lad time, he kills Kang before returning to the time stream to become Kang. Due to this, though, due to him returning to the time stream, Iron Lad cannot have killed Kang because Kang still exists. And so once Iron Lad returns to the time stream, leaving the Young Avengers with this new and improved teen vision, Kang just (gasps) wakes up and he is back on his bullshit immediately. He decides to battle with the Avengers across different timelines, also battles Ultron at one point. He returns to Egypt to continue his reign as Ramatut and ends up uh, clashing with En Sabanur, who would eventually grow to become Apocalypse. And due to the uh, respect that he gains for Apocalypse, he decides, I know that Apocalypse is eventually going to have descendants and so he finds these two apocalypse twins that are born captures them as infants and raises them through cruelty and all of the wartime uh marcus uh marcus proved efforts and results to raise them to be his perfect weapons however he is betrayed by the twins and due to them traveling back to the modern era and stealing The cosmic power from a celestial, they erase his timeline. So Kang has to escape his dying timeline with the remnants of his empire. And the remnants of the Avengers from a future war-torn timeline back to the modern day before the Apocalypse Twins can destroy the celestial and take its power. 
They kill the Apocalypse Twins. Kang takes the power for himself. Sends the Apocalypse Twins off and they are never to be seen again. Um, Kang is ultimately defeated by the Avengers Unity Squad alongside Amortis and his new Infinity Watch. And Kang is thrown back into the time stream upon his defeat. Kang hurtles through the time stream and ends up at the end of time and finds himself alongside Amortis as well as Iron Lad. He sort of understands why he's there, but this is the moment when he realizes, oh shit, the multiverse is collapsing and I'm going to need to pull some strings if I want to make sure I can continue my conquest. Don't worry, we're almost there. We're almost there. So, after learning about the death of the multiverse, after Steve Rogers escapes back into the time stream, he sets out to preserve his corner of the universe. He takes Black Bolt's son, Ahura, to potentially save him from the collapse of the multiverse. And the reasons why are never really made clear why he's so special. However, he does take him to a new and improved Chronopolis, and the two of them ride out the death of the multiverse within the confines and the safety of this new haven. After the universe is restored, the Inhumans launch a rescue effort to try and get Ahura back. Kang is defeated, sent back into the time stream, as I'm sure we're all familiar with. However... This time, as he is hurtled through the time stream, a glitch occurs. It is not immediately made clear what causes this glitch. There are a dozen things. I mean, the Marvel timeline is so ridiculously jacked that it could have been literally anything. But what's important is that this glitch causes Kang to once again diverge. Several different versions of Kang are created due to this. One of them ends up right smack dab in the modern day Marvel Universe. And this Kang, after being stranded in this time period, decides I am going to try and make my way and conquer this timeline from within. And so he establishes a new identity as Mr. Griffin and establishes Kang Enterprises. That's Q-E-N-G. And somehow no one in the modern Marvel era realizes what's happening here. He also buys Stark Tower and establishes his home base there and ends up clashing with the Avengers once his ruse is discovered and he is sent back into the time stream by Mighty Thor. A different divergent Kang encounters an omnipotent Thanos in the year 4657, which leads to a universal collapse. So he recruits Adam Warlock to find the Soul Gem, which he says is the key to stopping this future from taking place and prevent Adam Warlock from being erased completely. It is Due to the events of this that he ends up clashing with Requiem, who is revealed later to be Gamora hunting for the Infinity Stones. He is eventually defeated and sent back into the time stream, where he makes a couple appearances helping out Doctor Doom, though this is later revealed to be him manipulating things to make the world easier to conquer in 200 years' time. And after all of this, after taking some time back in Chronopolis and realizing 
I am so tired. I can't even keep straight what I'm doing right now. He decides to manipulate his own time stream one last time. And the reasons will be revealed. In the most recent Kang series, which brings us right up to modern day, we did it! We did it! We did the full Kang timeline! My god, this was, um, this was a lot. This was a lot, um, but now you know literally everything you need to know and probably a lot of stuff you don't need to know about Kang the Conqueror leading into his current Marvel stuff. So, if you are interested in reading that Marvel stuff, I've got some recommended reading like we do for every Geek Explained session. Uh, so... First book that I want to give you, I've got five books and an honorable mention. Uh, first book is Young Avengers Volume 1, entitled Sidekicks. This takes place in Young Avengers issues 1 through 6, written by Alan Heinberg, art by Jim Chung, and this is the Iron Lad origin. This is where we get the introduction to Iron Lad, this is where Kang shows up, the reveal that Iron Lad is Kang, all that good stuff. I'd also recommend the Celestial Madonna Saga. This is Avengers, I believe, Volume 1, uh, issues 123 through 135, as well as Giant Size Avengers issues 2 through 4. This is written by Steve Englehart, Jim Starlin and Roy Thomas, with art by John and Sal Buscema, Dave Cockrum, and Don Heck. This is the Mantis Saga, where he does the weird thing trying to mate with Mantis. I, it's, it's a weird time. The 60s were a weird time for comics. Uh, but this is also his clash with Rama Tut. Uh, Avengers Forever uh, is also the a book that I think you should check out. It's Contained, it's a 12-issue series, separate from the current Avengers Forever run by Jason Aaron. Um, this Avengers Forever run is written by Kurt Busiek and Roger Stern with art by Carlos Pacheco. Shout out to the um, recently passed Carlos Pacheco. His art is incredible and will live forever. Uh, but this is the Destiny War arc where he wages war against the Timekeepers, clashes with Immortus, and Kang averts his fate as Immortus. I'd also recommend Kang Dynasty, of course. It's Avengers Volume 4, Issues 41 through 55, as well as Avengers Annual 2001. This is written by Kurt Busiak and Alan... Or, this is written again by Kurt Busiak with art by Alan Davis and Kieran Dwyer. This is probably Kang's most iconic modern story, and is also where Kang wins! This is when Kang and Marcus uh, declare war on the Earth with the Damocles base, all that fun stuff. And then finally, my final final uh, recommended reading is Only Myself to Conquer. This is the most recent Kang miniseries. It just wrapped up late last year. This is Kang the Conqueror issues 1 through 5. This is written by the hive mind Colin Kelly and Jackson Lansing with art by Carlos Magno. Again, this is the most recent run and kind of kickstarts the current status quo for Kang. Uh, it's also a really good retrospective of Kang's entire timeline and does a great job in giving layman's the everything they really need to know about Kang. If you've never uh, read any of Kang's stuff, if you've never done, uh, if you didn't sit through any of this, um, 
I think it's a it's a great jumping on point for an introduction to the character. So I would definitely check this one out for sure. Plus, Kelly and Lansing are killing it right now. Uh, they have been crushing it in the Steve Rogers Captain America book. Uh, we know that Cold War is coming up, and they're also now going to be penning the new Guardians book that's also dropping in April. So it's just a great book all around. My last honorable mention for recommended reading isn't really recommended reading at all. It's actually... Watching a TV show, bringing it full circle for this uh, for this episode. I absolutely recommend ma- watching his appearances in Avengers: Earth's Mightiest Heroes. This is Kang distilled and simplified to his purest form. On uh, season one, they have a full Kang trilogy. It's the episodes "The Man Who Stole Tomorrow," "Come the Conqueror," and "The Kang Dynasty," which kind of amalgamate amalgamates amalgamizes whatever the word is uh, his original comic stories as well as Kang Dynasty. And it's just a great three-parter. Really, really solid stuff. One of the best uh, story arcs in the entire show. I'm pretty sure I had it in my uh, best episodes for the uh, Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes episode. Go back in the archives. I love that episode. I love that show. And in season two, he gets a little bit of revenge, and we also get an appearance from the Council of Kangs in the episode New Avengers. So check those out. He's wonderful. But that does it for Kang. We have successfully geeksplained him all the way through his many, many different lifetimes, and it's not done yet. We know that there are so many Kang stories yet to be told, and now, as he is going to appear in the MCU, so many film Kang stories to be told. But what will become of Kang? Will he travel back to try and marry Mantis in the MCU? She's around. Will he become Immortus? Will the Kang dynasty lead to the end of the multiverse and all of reality itself? I guess time will tell. Welcome back to this week's Comics Countdown. This is the segment of our show where I'll chat you up about all the comics you should be picking up this week, whether it's at your local comic book shop, a comicsology, or however you pick up your comics. These are the ones I think you should definitely take a look at. But before we get into this week's comics, we got to take a look back at last week's comics with a Geeksplained Pick of the Week of last week. And honestly, it was really difficult to decide between these two, so I just chose both of them. First off, we have Human Target number 11. 11, written by Tom King, art by Greg Smallwood. This book continues to impress. It is absolutely the prettiest book that DC has been putting out over the past year, and it's absolutely one of my favorites. It's the penultimate chapter, so you know there's some big revelations, and that's exactly what they delivered on, and I really, really loved it. And also, Sins of Sinister, number one, written by Kieran Gillen with art by Lucas Wernick. Um, This was not at all what I expected, and And I kind of loved it for that. I'm really, really excited to see what they do with Sins of Sinister. uh, Because at this point... Karen Gillan is operating on another level from everybody else. Uh, he's playing 12D chess while the rest of us are playing checkers. So I cannot wait to see exactly what he's got in store for us. Uh, it's going to be a wild ride, and I can't wait to uh, continue on with that. But that's last week's books. This week, we've got five books for you to check out. So let's go ahead and dive into them. First things first, we've got Scarlet Witch number two. This is written by Steve Orlando with art by 
by Sarah Pacelli, Pacelli Cinderella, and I absolutely loved the first issue. I really like the idea of Scarlet Witch being this kind of character who, if you have some, like, if something strange is going on in the neighborhood, who are you going to call? Wanda Maximoff, obviously. I I loved that first issue. I'm very excited to bring Viv into the story because that is such a well of untapped storytelling that I, I'm really excited. And I hope that Viv sticks around for the whole run and becomes, if not like the secondary protagonist, maybe a deuteragonist of the story. Uh, I'm really excited. So let's just go ahead and dive into the synopsis. Scarlet Witch Battles Dream Queen Wanda Maximoff is no stranger to grief, so when Viv Vision stumbles through Wanda's door, exhausted and terrified of the nightmares playing her mother's death on repeat, Wanda dives into Viv's dreams to find out the cause of the android's suffering. And it turns out Viv isn't alone in her mind. Scarlet Witch faces off against Dream Queen in a reality-bending battle for Viv's freedom. Plus, this issue includes a special superheroic backup story featuring Scarlet Witch and Storm celebrating Black History Month. That's really cool. I think that's really awesome. Anytime we include Storm in literally anything is a thumbs up from me, so I'm very excited to pick this up. Next up, we have Lazarus Planet Legends Reborn, number one. This is written by Greg Pak, uh, Dennis Culver, Alex Segura, and Alex Pacnadel, with art by Clayton Henry, Christopher Mitten, Jesus Marino, and Minkyu Jung. And this seems to be another big anthology tie-in for Lazarus Planet. We've been getting... A few of those. Uh, last week's uh, When We Were Gods I thought was actually really good, and I'm excited to continue on with that. And hopefully this one continues on that uh, that rhythm and that streak that we've had so far. The tie-ins, I think, have been just as strong as the main... Uh, the main meat of the event so far, which is not, as we've discussed on this podcast, very common. So I am really excited to pick this up. This, I think, is supposed to introduce at least one new character as well. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. Masks and Monsters Ancient and dangerous power has been awakened following the eruption of the Lazarus Volcano, and this surge of fantastical power will affect the DC Universe forevermore. In Lazarus Planet Legends Reborn, we'll explore corners of the planet newly awakened and primed to restore some heroes and villains long forgotten. With the help of Nightwing, can new hero City Boy hope to commune with Gotham in time to save it? Who are the mysterious trio claiming to be resurrected siblings of Raven? How far would the question go to chase a lead across a transformed Gotham City? And will the flame of Firestorm burn out yet another horrific host? Not if Harley Quinn has anything to say about it. That's interesting. I think uh, a couple of those seem really interesting. It looks like Renee is going to be retaking the question mantle, which I think is a net positive because the whole thin blue line comic has not been not been great and the optics on it are not great either so i am uh, i'm interested to see what they do here next up we have dark web finale number one this is written by zeb wells with art by francesco mortarino and adam kubert and this is the big finale as it states of the dark web event i like I said, I last week was a little skeptical about the whole Ben being ultimately the bad guy, uh, 
even to the point that Maddie turns against him, and there's they've more or less kind of left a any kind of redemption for him by the wayside, which sucks. And I'm I really I'm really disappointed by that. However, I am very interested to see how they wrap this up. Uh, hopefully, Ben gets some kind of treatment some kind of good uh good send-off for him i don't know what the plan is for him going forward but uh we will just have to wait and see let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis in the bleak midwinter the dawn rises after the demonic invasion of new york city but what will that light reveal it will reveal Chasm's final gambit and the new denizens of hell he helped create and unleash on Spider-Man and the X-Men. See how Dark Web changed this city's landscape forever. So that's interesting that it's positing that we're going to see some lasting changes from this, which I think is the thing that I've been waiting to see in this book like it feels up to this point in this event at least very much like this is a one-off everything's going to go back to normal which is kind of bog standard for comic events but if they do have certain uh certain changes that last especially in new york which is the hub of marvel i would be really really excited by the prospect of that so we'll just have to wait and see next up we have the flash one minute war special number one this is written by jeremy adams with art by fernando pazarin george cambades uh lisandro estheren serge acuna and if i pronounced any of those wrong i apologize i am terrible at these sometimes but uh if you listen to our interview with jeremy adams again super super Excited and thankful that he uh, took the time to sit down and speak with me about One Minute War. Uh, You know that he's been looking forward to this. So I am very excited. And he also dropped a hint that we should be checking this out because it is going to uh, shake things up. So I'm excited. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. A lot can happen in 60 seconds. As the Flash event One Minute War rages on, writer Jeremy Adams gives you further insights into the alien speedster race that has invaded Central City and how the Flash family fights back. Yeah, can't really go any further than that. I'm really excited to see what they do here. But the big book of the week, the book I think you should absolutely be picking up, is Captain America Sentinel of Liberty number 9. This is written by the Hive Mind, Jackson Lansing, and Colin Kelly, with art, of course, by Carmen Carnero. And this book is so freaking good. I've been talking about how good the Captain America books have been for a while now, and this is just continuing on, and according to the cover as well as the cliffhanger of last issue, issue number eight, we're getting the return of the Invaders, which I'm really stoked about. You know how much I love the Invaders. Uh, Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. The Invader, part three, The Invasion of New York. Captain America and his allies put their best infiltration tactics to the test to free Lower Manhattan from Ames' grasp. But the battleground is not what it seems, and the Outer Circle not so easily surprised. Can Steve Rogers uncover a lurking enemy, or will his friends face doom at the hands of the Outer Circle's most deadly soldier? Yeah tells you all you need to know i'm very excited about this and it makes sense now why this arc is called the invader so i 
Ah, I'm so excited. This is going to be a great week for comics. I can already feel it. But that does it for this week's Comics Countdown. To recap, we have Scarlet Witch number two, Lazarus Planet Legends Reborn number one, Dark Web Finale number one, The Flash One Minute War Special number one, and Captain America Sentinel of Liberty number nine. So we've got quite a few number ones this week, so make sure it is your number one priority to pick up some great comics. And that is going to bring us to the wrap-up. If this is your first time joining us on the Explain podcast and you like what I do here, feel free to subscribe to us on the podcasting platform of your choice and give us a rating and review. We drop new episodes every single Wednesday, and honestly, ratings, reviews, and subscriptions really do help me and the podcast out in this weird podcasting algorithm space. Raises up our stock and gets us out and into the orbit of listeners just like you. And if you give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, whatever you want to call it, I will read your review here live on the podcast you can write literally anything you want and i will be forced to read it as long as you give me those five stars the sky's on the limit on what you can write and you'll be able to join the likes of our red 13 including seafire nd joshua pales to pixels matt draper burrito man 88 duck from for every kind of geek don swanson that guy brian mouth dork dallas meeks amazing spider fan alock and az sass and jedi jesse 20 want to say a huge thank you to these fine folks for their reviews and i cannot wait to hear yours if you want to be part of our geeksplain mailbag send your emails to geeksplained at gmail.com put mailbag in the subject header and i will read it here on the wednesday show if you would like to follow us Keep up to date with the podcast, participate in polls that decide future episodes, or maybe you just want to shoot the shit with me on the latest geeky news, and you know there's a lot of it. Feel free to follow us on Instagram and Twitter for as long as Twitter is around. At Geeksplained Pod is where you will find us at Geeksplained POD. We are talking a lot of stuff. There's a lot of news coming out right now, so make sure you tune in with us there. Give us a follow, and uh, yeah, let's get that conversation rolling. Finally, every single Friday is the Geeksplained book club where i alongside my amazing friends malcolm russell nelson and jacob brown are going through every single issue of every single volume of a comic and this friday we are kicking off season three of the geek explained book club we have gone we've completed two whole seasons plus a little mini season with the uh days of thunder last year and season three is dedicated to grant morrison's Batman. Uh, if you are paying attention to any of the news right now, there's lots of rumors and innuendo going on, and you know, Batman might be a big part of that. So now's the perfect time to jump on in with us. This Friday, we're going to be covering Grant Morrison and Dave McKean's Arkham Asylum, a serious house on serious earth. And from every week through that, we're going to be dedicating every Friday to Batman until we complete the saga of Grant Morrison. I love their work. You love their work. Every Friday, let's get together and gush about how great their work is. So join us on Friday. Uh, Spidey Fridays are now Bat Fridays, I guess. We'll figure out a fun name for it. But uh, be there or be square, not a circle. But that's going to do it for this week's episode. Uh, I... Really appreciate you sticking with me through this. Kang's history is about as complicated as we've covered here on the podcast. And it was not easy to put that together. So I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you came away learning a little bit more about Kang. And I hope you got some comics that maybe you'll be interested in reading. So I'm really excited to see Kang pop up in Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. I think it's going to be a good time and I'm excited to see where he goes in the MCU. And speaking of Ant-Man and the Wasp, next week 
week is the latest edition of our Geeksplain Spotlight series where I'm going to be putting the Geeksplain Spotlight on the Ant-Man Anniversary Special. Four chapters, Al Ewing, Tom Riley, let's freaking go. So next week we're going to be covering that. Ant-Man 60th Anniversary Special. Uh, join me for that and uh, tune in for that episode as we uh, continue the march on to Ant-Man and the Wasp this month as of this recording. Uh, so tune in for that next week. Same geek time, same geek channel. But for now, for the Geek Explained Podcast, I've been Eric Kazana. Thank you so much for listening. Stay safe and we will see you next time. <laughs>